Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with the vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning, and it is a great morning, and I want to get right to my first guest, who is Congressman Bob Good, uh, joining us this morning to uh, give us an update on all things going on in Congress. So good morning, Representative Good. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Jenna. Great to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so you're doing a lot of great work in Congress. And I want to start first uh, with the RAINS Act. Uh, you know, this was a piece of legislation that would have really provided uh, the, the the Congress with the ability to rein in the executive branch. And thus, I think the title, the RAINS Act. Um, I always love seeing some of those things. But uh, you had added an amendment to this uh, that would have provided that the executive branch uh, could not really make any um, abortion issues and and uh, provide assistance without the overview of Congress. And uh, so explain wh- what this was and how this happened. And I was really disappointed to see the vote, especially among um, our fellow Republicans. And so what exactly happened? Well, to, to clarify for the folks who may not be as familiar with the RAINS Act as you would be or as I would be, the RAINS Act is a piece of legislation that would require Congress to vote on any major rule, define major, major rule or regulation that the unelected bureaucrats and agencies and departments impose upon the American people. It would require Congress to vote on that, to take back the legislative or lawmaking responsibility, a major rule defined as $100 million or more, which is would be you know, that's using Washington standards. You know, we throw around trillions and billions, so $100 million or more. Uh, it's really the brainchild of Mike Lee on the Senate side, and we could have, Jenna, utilized the debt ceiling battle. That was in the Limit, Save, Grow bill, the first bill we passed out of the House, and it had the RAINS Act in there as policy, and we could have utilized the debt ceiling battle, try to force that through on the Senate, force that through on the White House. Unfortunately, that was one of the many strong provisions of the Limit, Save, Grow that we discharged or, or, or discarded, I should say, and didn't include in what I call the Failed Responsibility Act, the FRA, the debt ceiling deal that was made and ultimately passed. Then House leaders brought the RAINS Act back to the floor for a vote uh, as a standalone, if you will, not as part of the debt ceiling bill, and uh, it did pass the Republican House. However, I had a, to your specific question, I had an amendment that would say any provision by the agencies and departments, the unelected bureaucrats, and like, uh, like say Health and Human Services, for example, any rule they make that advances abortion, increases access to abortion, expands abortion, provides funding for abortion, anything like that, which likely might not rise to $100 million cost or wouldn't be covered, should be included. And to your point, sadly, while every Democrat, of course, the pro abortion party, every Democrat, you know, they can't get enough abortions at taxpayer expense. Every Democrat voted against that amendment. But sadly, 10 Republicans joined them and defeated my amendment. Uh, Which is just so sad, Representative Good, that we can't even get consensus on the Republican side that should be the pro-life 
advocates. And my understanding as well was that 12 Republicans uh, weren't even present to vote. And then 10 Republicans actually voted against this. And what was what was their reason for voting against this? Well, interestingly, I, uh, as soon as the vote, while I was on the House floor, we had a series of votes, and as soon as that that amendment went down, sadly, I went ahead and, and tweeted out of my office. Hey, it's, it's, it says a lot when where we've gotten to, where even Republicans can't vote to preserve life and to uh, at least require Congress to vote on expanding or increasing access to abortion. And I and I listed the ten names who had voted against it. Uh, and it's interesting that I ran into one of those members uh, the next day in just a happenstance meeting. I was going into this building, and, and this other member happened to be there at the same time. And the member said to me, you know, I want you to know that that vote yesterday, my, my abortion conviction is just as strong as yours. You know, I, I'm pro-life, too, and I just didn't feel like it belonged in the RAINS Act. And I said, well, if you can justify or rationalize your convictions with your vote, that's between you and your convictions – and I said, but all it would have done is required us to vote to increase abortion access and not allow the unelected bureaucrats to do it. We would have to take responsibility. And he said, well, I just didn't think that uh, that it belonged the Reigns Act, and I don't appreciate you making my vote public and tweeting it out like that. And I said, well, <laughs> if you're not proud of your vote, then you probably should vote differently. I said, because you can take any one of my votes and you can publish them wherever you want to because I'm proud of the stances that I take and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to hide my convictions. But it's interesting. He didn't want people to know he voted that way apparently. Uh, but, uh, you know, he wasn't concerned about his vote. He was concerned about me tweeting about his vote. Which just makes no sense because anybody can go and, and look at the vote. And I mean, it's it's a lot more difficult than obviously just seeing that on Twitter. But when um, there are other influencers and so forth that, that uh, put all of this up, Representative Good, and, and actually drew attention to this, there were other people as well that were tweeting, you know, here are the 10 names. And you know, for anybody listening, you can go and uh, look at either Representative Good's feed or, you know, just Google this and you can see this or search for it on Twitter. But that raises a really important question, though, is... Um, for people who are more concerned that their constituents are going to find out how they voted, uh, what does that tell you about maybe the pressure that they're getting from the Democrat side of the aisle to to not follow their conscience or not follow uh, what the Republican Party is supposed to be standing for, which is life? Exactly right. And you think about the logic of the vote. Uh, in my view was, A, I wanted to let the American people know you have 10 Republicans who didn't vote for this, and here's who they are. But think yeah. about it from this other member's perspective. These other members like to call themselves the majority makers. They claim, hey, we're in the swing districts, the, 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 the centrist purple districts, and, our, and somehow their vote counts more in the House than, than a conservative does, I guess. But think about this. Either you are pro-life, and a strong pro-life, and you don't want people to know you're voting contrary to what you claim to, I should say you claim to be pro-life, but you don't want people to know you voted contrary to that. Or maybe you, you want people to know that you're moderate on the abortion issue. So why then wouldn't you want people to know that's how you voted back in your district? If that's what's popular back in your district, you're trying to appeal to what you think the people in your district want, then why wouldn't you want them to know about your vote? If, however, it's not popular back home because you claim to be pro-life or strong pro-life, then maybe that's why you don't want people back home to know how you voted. Well, I, I applaud you for bringing accountability to this issue, and hopefully there will be another opportunity uh, to put this type of amendment. You've mentioned the RAINS Act is um, is going to the Senate. Um, do you have confidence through your colleagues there, like, um, for example, Senator Mike Lee, that this is going um, to be to be passed through the Senate, and is there an opportunity to maybe put some kind of 
um, additional amendment there, even though we all understand, um, unfortunately, the composition of the Senate is more difficult right now? Well, you would hope we would get every single Republican to vote for uh, the RAINS Act, because, again, all it does is take back legislative power from the uh, the executive branch, the unelected bureau, and I keep saying that, but the people in the agencies and departments who are not accountable to the voters, who want to make law, which is really oppressive and costly, suppresses freedom, expands government, uh, think about the climate agenda, things like that. And so you think every Republican could vote for it, and perhaps you'll have a handful of those vulnerable Democrats in red states like Montana, West Virginia, Ohio, who are up for re-election, maybe they'll vote for it as well. And then we could pass it out of the Senate and put pressure on the president to go ahead and sign it. Mm-hmm. Well, we will be praying for that and um, and also just to, to have courage in the Republican Party to actually stand for pro-life because we have an opportunity that we've never had, uh, at least in my lifetime, to continue to uh, advance uh, pro-life measures and make sure that we are uh, holding the executive branch accountable. And speaking of that as well, uh, Representative Good, there have been a number of um, presidential candidates that have suggested more of a hands-off approach on uh, from the federal government with respect to the issue of abortion in uh, 2024 and beyond and saying, well, we just want to look at the states. That's now totally a state issue. Um, you have been very clear, and I think rightly so, that the Dobbs opinion put puts this issue back to uh, the people's elected representatives, which include Congress. And so uh, what are what are you and your fellow colleagues looking for from um, a Republican executive if uh, there is a, a takeover again of the White House in 2024 from a Republican? And do you see some of this rhetoric from some of the candidates? Um, because in my view, it's, it's just kind of uh, skirting the issue and it's unwilling to stand up and be as pro-life as we should be on the federal level. You're exactly right. Well said, Jenna. We ought to act like we know and understand and recognize the opportunity that the Dobbs decision. We ought to be doing those things we talked about before Roe was overturned. We ought to be as bold and aggressive and even more so on life now that we have this opportunity. And as you accurately said, it turned the life decision, the abortion decision, back to the people's representatives, including Congress. It allows state to lim- state to limit it and restrict it, of course, but it also allows Congress to do so. And I call it the great departure. You're seeing some in the Republican Party wanting to abandon and depart from this issue altogether, even some presidential candidates. But I want to give credit where it's due. One of the many reasons I'm supporting Ron DeSantis is because he signed the heartbeat bill in Florida. He's being bold on that issue, along with every other conservative issue. He's being attacked by Republicans for that, for showing courage like he has shown on many other issues. And we need leadership like that. We are also working on a Life at Conception Act in the House. Uh, we were the, uh, one of the lead spon- co-sponsors of that in the previous Congress. We drove the discharge petition pre-Roe overturn last year. But we're also working on particular language to satisfy my colleagues who, you know, I want to make sure it fits within federalism, if you will, and the limits of the Constitution from a congressional standpoint. But we're going to bring a Life at Conception Act to the floor again. We're working on that in my office, and we're going to continue to be bold on life. If there's anything that should unite us, it should be standing up for innocent, precious life in the womb, and all Republicans ought to support that. And it's the Democrats who are the extremists, as, as we know, want no restrictions up in the moment of birth and taxpayers to have to pay for it. 
Well said, and I'm so grateful that you are bringing forth uh, that type of legislation and holding uh, Republicans accountable for standing firm on what should be our convictions and as we should be not only conservatives and understanding the process and federalism not to overstep, but also to utilize the power that we do have on the federal level uh, to make sure that we are protecting life from the moment of conception. And so in just the last two minutes I have with you, Congressman Bob Good and I so appreciate every time that you can come on and give us this update. Um, what would something like that look like in an ideal uh, framework to say, here's what Congress can do without overstepping? Well, I think Congress can uh, utilize the 14th Amendment, you know, where it says that no one should be de- you know, deprived of life without due process. Certainly that ought to apply to precious, innocent life in the womb. And, you know, co- co- government's responsibility is to safety and security of American citizens, and that includes protecting those who cannot protect themselves. And that should include and unite all of us with, you know, to protect precious, innocent life in the womb. You know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is a founding principle of our country. And, you know, there's no decision in the history of the, of the country that costs over 60 million lives like the Roe decision did. We fought that for almost uh, 50 years, from 73 to 92, excuse me, 2022, uh, 49 years. And now we ought to be bold and take this opportunity and would hope one day, and Congress has a role to play, that we will look back at those who supported abortion like we look back at those who supported slavery. As slavery was a nation's scourge in the 18th and 19th centuries, so is abortion in the 20th and 21st centuries. And so we're going to we're working on you know just precise language that will satisfy hopefully all Republicans or at least those who are truly pro-life. We're going to give them a chance to vote on that. Hopefully this year we'll need pressure on leadership to allow us to bring it to the floor. We're still working on that, and we'll continue to work on that uh, and get it to the floor when we can. Excellent. We'll look forward to that update when you can bring that to the floor. Uh, Congressman Bob Good, thank you so much for your time and for all of your hard work uh, in Congress. You are one of the most bold and fearless leaders uh, that we have that are pushing for all of these issues that are so important to so many, uh, particularly Christians, but anyone who understands the mandate of Congress. So thank you for your work on this. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jenna. Great to be with you. Keep up the fight, my friend. Thank you so much, sir. And, uh, you know, it's really important as we go forward to the 2024 election. This is the first presidential election uh, after the Dobbs decision. And so uh, we want to make sure that as Christians, we are continuing to advocate for pro-life in every single election, especially on the federal level. But also it's very important that we stand up for pro-life. And that is a really, really big issue, I think, in the presidential election. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Let's be real. Retirement is expensive and inflation is making it even harder with the cost of everything going up from pet food to a dozen eggs. Wouldn't it be great if the cost of your health care could go down? Well, MediShare 65 Plus is $99 a month for ages 65 to 74. And for many with Medicare Parts A and B, looking at other options, that's 50% or more saved per month. No gimmicks. It's $99 a month, and you can use any Medicare-approved doctor or facility, and you get 24-7 access to telehealth from the convenience of your home. Better yet, 
MediShare is a Christian nonprofit organization. It's a community that'll pray for you and encourage you. And since we've cut out the middleman, you get to keep the savings. Call now. You can learn more about MediShare 65+. Plus. Here's the number, 833-45-BIBLE. That's 833-45-BIBLE, 833-45-BIBLE. This is Pause to Pray, a chance to stop down each day from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro. He is the state's 48th governor and the former attorney general. James 1.19 reminds us of the qualities of a good leader. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to guide Governor Josh Shapiro as he leads the people of Pennsylvania. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Stern. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. President Obama is suggesting something that sounds very close to a social credit score. He's calling on the government to use digital fingerprints to crack down on people who spread what he calls misinformation online. Sort of like when he said, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. So how would a social credit score work in real life? Well, Brandon Jackson may have a thought or two about that. He was locked out of his Amazon account for more than a week because a delivery guy thought his automated doorbell system uttered a racial slur. Now, video footage exonerated Jackson, and he sent the proof to Amazon, but it took almost another week for them to unlock the account. Imagine a future where your bank accounts could be frozen because of your political beliefs, or your internet access denied because you cracked a joke that someone found offensive. The world of 1984 has finally arrived in America, folks. I'm Todd Starnes. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, friends, if you thought that the presidential election uh, was already really exciting and, dare I say, wild, well, there is someone else who is entering the race as of yesterday, at least officially on the ballot in my former home state of Colorado, and that is Joe Exotic. Yes, uh, this is actually the person who all of you may remember the whole uh, craze about Tiger King uh, back during the whole pandemic lockdown. It was kind of this uh, this Netflix series that uh, just kind of went viral. And I think because people were uh, staying in during the initial two weeks to slow the spread. And um, this, this was a really kind of odd series. I, full disclosure, did not watch the whole thing. Um, did not really understand why this kind of went viral, but um, definitely followed along on Twitter. And now Joe Exotic, whose uh, name, or that's, that's kind of his uh, stage name, 
His actual name is Joseph Maldonado Passage, uh, known widely as Joe Exotic, has filed the paper- paperwork to appear on the 2024 Democrat presidential primary ballot in Colorado, according to the former zookeeper. So this is according to uh, Fox 31 in Colorado. And they say that the 60-year-old was the subject of the popular Netflix documentary Tiger King, which was released in 2020. Maldonado is currently serving a 21-year sentence in federal prison for being convicted in a murder-for-hire plot because he's not set to be released until years after the 2024 election ends. He will run his campaign from prison. So, uh, you know, this is the next challenger to RFK and Joe Biden. And so, you know, the Democrat Party is probably saved by Joe Exotic. And uh, my, my initial reaction to this is, isn't this ridiculous that this is the state of American politics? Um, and I don't think that anyone is really going to take uh, somebody like Joe Exotic seriously. But the fact that, you know, here we are heading into 2024 and we have candidates uh, like Kanye, for example, like Joe Exotic and some of these others that are just so ridiculous that uh, we don't have this respect for the highest office in the land that we used to at least uh, during the founding. And I think that we should. Um, It really just shows that this has kind of become um, a caricature of itself. And a lot of people in the media uh, just consider this type of office more of like a mascot in the United States and, and something that um, is more of a celebrity status role than someone who's actually the leader of the nation. And I think it's incumbent upon we the people to uh, take our civic duty a lot more seriously than this and uh, require the the candidates that we vote for to have not only a serious policy considerations um, and a serious strategy not only for actually winning but also um, for working with congress working uh, with Uh, members like Representative Good that we just had in the last segment um, to really change this country for the better and to continue to create a more perfect union. We are about to uh, celebrate in a couple of weeks, um, July 4th, and the uh, the initial um, founding of our country. And I hope that we all take a moment to realize what a blessing it is to live in the United States and have the opportunity to select and prefer our leaders. And so um, when I see headlines that are just so, in my view, completely ridiculous like this, it it makes me pause and say, okay, what has the perception of American government become uh, particularly on the world stage. So um, so take that for what it's worth. And uh, speaking of the 2024 election, uh, former President Trump sat for an interview with uh, Fox News's Brett Baer last night. And um, in case you missed it, this was actually, in, in uh, my opinion, a remarkable interview because uh, Brett Baer was not entirely... Uh, just friendly to the former president. This wasn't one of those typical um, kind of Sean Hannity interviews or others that uh, President Trump um, just, you know, went on on, you know, some of his his typical more rally style uh, rhetoric. There were some questions um, from Brett Baer that were very, very pointed. Um, and, you know, some of these things I think I think were just very interesting. So the first um, clip that I want to play is um, Brett Baer asking this question 
about personnel issues. And uh, one of these things that I, I personally believe is going to be very difficult for President Trump to defend his record on. So uh, this is cut one. In 2016, you said that. I'm going to surround myself with only the best and most serious people. Well, I did do that. This and we time, had tremendous, look, we had the best economy we've ever had. This the world time, has ever seen. Your Vice President Mike Pence is running against you. Yeah. Your Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, she's running against you. Your former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said he's not supporting you. You mentioned National Security Advisor John Bolton. He's not supporting you either. You mentioned Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, says you shouldn't be president again. Uh, calls you the consummate narcissist and troubled man. You recently called and uh, bar a, a gutless pig. Uh, your second defense secretary is not supporting you. Called you irresponsible. This week, you and your White House called your White House chief of staff, John Kelly, weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, a born loser. You called your first secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, dumb as a rock and your first defense secretary, James Mattis, the world's most overrated general. You called your White House press secretary, Kayla Kennedy, milquetoast, and multiple times you've referred to your transportation secretary, Elaine Chao, as Mitch McConnell's China-loving wife. So, why did you hire all of them in the first place? Because I hired 10 to one that were fantastic. We had a great economy. We had phenomenal people in charge of the economy. We had phenomenal people in the military. I'm not a fan of Millie, and I'm not a fan of certain of the television people. But I knocked out ISIS. I defeated ISIS. They said, Mattis, it would take three years, and I don't think we can do it. I did it in a period of, like, four weeks. There's a lot of people who praise you for your policies. I just said true. that. That's true. Well, I mean, you just went through a list. But don't forget, for every one you say, I had ten that love us. So uh, that went on and and uh, was back and forth. And honestly, this this was just brutal. And and I think is uh, really evidencing an issue that is going to be paramount uh, for President Trump, who right now is the perceived um, incumbent candidate, even though this is an open primary. Um, there are a lot of uh, people that are suggesting, and certainly President Trump's team, that you know the nomination is is his to lose. And at least if we take uh, the polls accurately, then I would agree with that. Uh, but these are some things that he's really going to have to defend. And there was a lot of commentary uh, afterward, um, not only on other news networks and commentary on social media, uh, but people who are saying, you know, look, who who Trump hired to to work for him. And after he's now uh, trashing almost everyone who worked for him since he went down the escalator in 2015, who would want to work for President Trump now? And I think that um, that is a really important question that is going to continue to come up during this primary cycle. And um, there's a lot of questions now uh, looking forward to August, which is coming up very rapidly with the first debate. And um, just by way of analysis, I think that this is going to be a very interesting question whether or not Donald Trump is going to get on that debate stage. And if um, if I, you know, just knowing how uh, President Trump operates, some of the, um, the strategic uh, mindset that goes behind the scenes in that campaign, because obviously I worked for him at one time, um, I think that he's going to make a strategic decision to either say, um, you know, I there's there's not really great responses to this, and I think the interview with Fox yesterday was a net negative uh, for him with anyone who watched this. 
and uh, to get on the debate stage with people like Chris Christie, particularly, and also um, Governor DeSantis, but then also um, former members of his own administration, like Nikki Haley, like Mike Pence. Um, he it, it would it would almost be like everyone there is challenging him because he would be the front runner, and I don't particularly see that he's going to want to get into the ring with uh, some of these other candidates and be on the defensive in a way that um, he hasn't been before, uh, because the last time that he was on the debate stage as a presidential candidate, he was also the incumbent. Um, he was also still in office. Now he's having to go in, and he still kind of has this outsider mentality. um, And that's what the campaign is running on. But he has a record to defend. And that's, to me, what is so fascinating is that there are questions that um, should be asked. And I don't think that this was an unfair uh, question or assimilation of of Trump's um, own comments about some of his former um, appointees and staff hires and to, to just ask those questions. And um, the the questions are going to get more pointed uh, the more that we continue. So, uh, so my prediction, at least at the moment, and of course, you know, things can absolutely change. But um, my prediction is that he is going to make that assessment whether or not to get on the debate stage based on whether he views it to be a, a more substantial risk to either have to defend his record and have some of those pointed questions by not only whoever the moderator is, but also and especially uh, his fellow candidates on the debate stage, or if he's going to view it as a higher risk for not entering the debate and having um, some potential backlash on that. Um, I, I think that this could be easily uh, spun by the Trump campaign to say that, um, you know, he's the front runner and because he's um, at least in the polls right now up by um, 30 points is what they're suggesting. Um, I don't really take polls all that seriously personally, um, but because he is so far up in some of the polls and he is running on this perception that he's still the incumbent and the front runner, he would basically just say, well, I don't need to uh, do a multi-candidate uh, event like this, and also there's the matter of signing the pledge that a uh, that the RNC is at least at this point requiring of all of the other candidates that if they participate in the debate, they'll have to sign a pledge to eventually support whoever the nominee is. And uh, when that was attempted the last time in 2016, uh, didn't really go over well. And <laughs> so we'll see how uh, President Trump approaches that. But um, but I think this is going to be interesting, and I think that it's it's incumbent upon all of us as voters, as American citizens, to ask some of these really important questions. Um, Ask the policy questions and ask uh, these questions and look at um, all of the candidates and ask what are really the um, strategic uh, decisions that they would be making uh, as the leader of the free world. And I think that it is um, it is absolutely okay to ask some of these questions. And so uh, the second clip um, that I want to play as well that was just really interesting, of course, related to uh, the indictment of former President Trump, which is also a very interesting piece of uh, the whole political calculation here. Um, but I thought just from a legal perspective, it was really fascinating that uh, President Trump was willing to answer these questions. And of course, he's always concerned more about the court of public opinion uh, than he is necessarily about uh, what his lawyers' uh, positions and strategies can be and whether or not he's foreclosing them in a, in a court of law. But this is what uh, Brett Baer asked and what he had to say about that. This is cut two. 
According to the indictment, you were here at Bedminster on July 21st, 2021, after you're no longer president, and you were recorded saying that you had a document detailing a plan of attack on another country that was prepared by the U.S. military for you when you were president, the Iran attack plan. You remember that? Ready? You were recorded. It wasn't a document. Okay. I had lots of paper. I had copies of newspaper articles. I had copies of magazines. I know. This I is specifically a quote. You're quoted and, on the recording know, saying the document was secret, adding that you could have declassified it while you were president, but, quote, now I can't. You know this is still secret, highly confidential. And the indictment cites the recording and the testimony from people in the room saying you showed it to people there that day. So you say on this on tape it says just the opposite. that you can't and, declassify and it, so why have it? What I said, when I said that I couldn't declassify it now, that's because I wasn't president. I, I never made any bones about that. When I'm not president, I can't declassify it. That's what you said. You didn't I said declassify that. it. I said, no, no. I said I couldn't declassify could it. But that wasn't a document, it. Brent. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. I'm just saying what the indictment says. Well, they, the recording people, and the look, people in the room who these testified. These people are very dishonest people. They're thugs. They're thugs. If you look at what they've done to other people, what they've done to... and overturned in the U.S. Supreme Court. These are thugs. These the suggestion was people. that you wanted this as evidence that the military, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, had preemptively sent you plans for a possible attack on Iran and that you didn't order that to happen. That's the suggestion. I never ordered it to happen, no. But no. that's why you wanted the document. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a document from Milley. Milley, frankly, was incompetent. The last one I'd want to attack with as my leader would be Milley. That I can tell you. All right, last I think you thing know on this. this. All right. So uh, that was a really fascinating exchange. And of course, uh, the legal analysts on uh, social media, uh, including our friend Jonathan Turley, uh, he tweeted this. Brett Baer conducted an extraordinary interview with Donald Trump, who discussed the criminal allegations in detail. Statements of this kind are generally admissible at trial. And he's right. Uh, Trump was saying that the boxes contained golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes, uh, Bear interjected Iranian war plans, and Trump objected, not that I know of. So he's denying what he stated on the audio tape, at least as far as the uh, indictment has suggested. And so uh, Jonathan Turley goes on to say, even if this was not going to be the defense of Trump's team, it now is. Trump is arguing that there was never a document and that he was referencing coverage of the Iran attack. So uh, this is going to be really fascinating for his current lawyers uh, to deal with. And like I said, I think that Trump is much more focused on the court of public opinion because that is going to matter more uh, leading up to 2024 than a trial that may uh, happen at a future date, probably after the election. So how his lawyers deal with it? We'll have to wait and see. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
telling Bibleist believers in Asia, no, that's the hardest thing we do. This is Bible League International, and we've spent the last few weeks telling you about the incredible move of God in the region of Asia, the part of the world where Christianity is growing fastest, but as many as 9 of 10 new believers in countries like China, India, and Bangladesh have no access to the Bible. They cannot open the Bible and be reminded of God's precious promises. Hey, we've told you about Shanti Varden in India. Born blind, wanted to end his life, but God brought him to saving faith. He's led hundreds to Jesus. They need Bibles in India. And Katsu, nearly beaten to death by his interrogator, but he led that man to Jesus, and together they've witnessed thousands coming to Christ just outside of Beijing. AFR listeners, you have blessed 12,000 Bibleist believers in Asia. Our goal is 16,000. We're still short. We need to wrap up June 25th, so at $5 a Bible, $100 since 20, pray about it, and then call 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD, or give it sendbiblesnow.org. Sendbiblesnow.org. And God bless you for caring. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Buzz Aldrin is the famed astronaut who planted the American flag on the moon and explored it for some 21 hours. What many don't know, however, is what Mr. Aldrin did to commemorate the moon landing. Aldrin, a committed Christian and elder in his local church, marked the incredible occasion by celebrating Holy Communion. The first meal ever eaten on the moon was a celebration of the Lord's table, a lunar declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and soon-coming King. That is pretty cool. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. You know, there's so much peer pressure and so many eroding factors in our culture that are bringing in the idea that gender is fluid and that somehow orientation is fixed, which is the other way around. Satan is a specialist in confusion and manipulation in order to fool people into believing his lies. You know, what are the intrinsic value of femininity? What is the intrinsic value of masculinity? Is it okay to be a man? Is it okay to be a woman? And even using the church in his schemes. It's a place where the church ought to be able to respond more graciously. In the special edition DVD from the AFA Cultural Institute, Practical Ways to Minister to the Sexually Broken, Stephen Black and Laura Lee Stanlake help us understand and deal with the questions and struggles of identity and show us how we can effectively and gracefully share God's truth. Order it today when you visit resources.afa.net. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, turning to another presidential candidate's interview that is making headlines uh, this week, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. went on Jordan Peterson's podcast, and they discussed a very interesting topic. Uh, not only is uh, RFK questioning uh, some of the vaccines, and specifically the COVID-19 vaccine, but also uh, questioning the cause of the rise of transgenderism and queerness, especially among young adolescent boys. And uh, he is questioning, and they had this really fascinating discussion 
Um, if you missed this, I would encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the Jordan Peterson podcast with RFK Jr. Um, they're discussing this uh, potential connection um, between the rise of transgenderism being in part caused by estrogen hormones in the water. And uh, this, of course, has uh, has been a, a question and a concern. And um, some of you may recall um, Alex Jones and what was said in the media as a, as a conspiracy theory. And, you know, a lot of us are saying, well, conspiracy theory now just means, um, you know, tomorrow's news today. But uh, he had suggested about eight years ago that there were chemicals in the water that were actually uh, causing frogs uh, to become um, amorphous and, uh, and and basically, and it was known as like, it's quote unquote, turning the frogs gay. But um, now about eight years later, later, reports are suggesting that he's right. So what is actually going on? And more importantly, why has this interview now between RFK Jr., um, who is a presidential candidate, and he thinks that these issues are worth talking about. This is now being pulled um, and has been pulled from YouTube. So he's being censored as a presidential candidate, um, and the mainstream media is not able to just put him kind of in the conspiracy theory far right box and say, you know, we don't need to pay attention to him and um, and try to marginalize his voice in the way that they have, frankly, been um, relatively effective at painting some of the people who are asking these questions into that box. So um, joining me now to discuss all of this and more is our good friend, uh, Raw Egg Nationalist, who, of course, is an author and uh, comments on um, all of these types of health issues as um, an anonymous uh, source. So, Rae, good morning and uh, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Jenna. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. So, uh, first, what do you make of this particular interview uh, with RFK Jr. and um, the questions that I think are very important that he's asking um, and this whole notion that there are uh, chemicals and, and estrogen hormones in water? in tap water that are uh, not 100% causing, but he's suggesting at least maybe a factor in why there are so many young adolescent boys that are are um, becoming more transgender and queer and having these tendencies. Oh, I think this is a tremendously uh, important issue, Jenna. It's something that's been... It's something that's been uh, on the back burner for a while, as you say. You mentioned Alex Jones and his uh, infamous gay frogs rant from about eight years ago. Well, that was that was a conspiracy theory eight years ago, even though there was ample evidence then that um, the sea of, of estrogenic chemicals that we're now bathed in are having all sorts of terrible, terrible gender-bending effects, um, absolutely de- deleterious to reproductive health well now eight years later we've got a we've got a member of the most powerful political dynasty in the u.s uh you know you you have a few political dynasties in the u.s the kennedys the clintons and um he's somebody who can't be ignored he's articulate he's intelligent he's he's um very very personable he comes across incredibly well he comes across with with passion and um yeah he's he's given two very very powerful interviews an interview with jordan peterson which was about 90 minutes and then he gave an interview with joe rogan which was three hours long but worth listening to every minute of it actually it was an incredibly compelling incredibly compelling interview and i think that people are going to have a very very hard time uh dismissing 
uh, RFK Jr. as the kind of conspiracy theorist that they like to denounce other people like Alex Jones as. Yeah, and and so and I think this is all just really fascinating that RFK is is willing to talk about some of these things and bring some of these uh, topics that are beyond the scope generally of what uh, presidential candidates uh, prefer to talk about. And so substantively, and and you're right, I I, um, I had not mentioned the Joe Rogan interview as well, which um, as you mentioned was three hours long, but really fascinating. Um, so what is his main contention here about um, chemicals in the water, and why are these these important questions for us to pay attention to and ask um, and say, you know, these are serious questions, not just uh, conspiracy theories. Well, so his his central contention is that we are exposed to a class of chemicals or classes of chemicals uh, that have estrogenic effects. So they mimic the effects of the what's normally called the female hormone estrogen in the human body. And um uh, this is a new phenomenon. This is something that's arisen in the last five or maybe seven decades since the introduction of plastics in particular and also other industrial chemicals, things like PFAS, which is which are used as fire retardants and in nonstick coatings and greaseproof paper and personal care products. So we're awash basically in these estrogenic substances and they're having all sorts of terrible, terrible effects on reproductive health. And this is this is very, very widely uh, documented in the scientific literature. This isn't just some sort of um, theory that's been plucked out of the sky. I mean, there are decades and decades of data substantiating um, birth defects, um, declining sperm counts, increasing uh, miscarriages among women, all sorts of all sorts of terrible, terrible, um, terrible, terrible reproductive effects. And the thing is that actually there was a book that was published last year by a professor called Shanna Swan, which makes the startling claim that by 2045, if we continue to extrapolate current trends in sperm counts, because sperm counts are declining precipitously, we'll end up at a point where it may actually be physically impossible for humans to reproduce by natural means. So the, the median man will have a sperm count of zero. And what that means is that half of all men will produce no sperm, and then the other half will produce so few that they might as well produce none. So within a few decades, you know, less than two decades, then we, we might, have, or two or so decades, we might actually end up in, in a position where we can't reproduce without some sort of mechanical intervention. I mean, that, that is scary. That's scary stuff. Yeah, it, it really is. And then it begs the question, uh, why is RFK Jr. the only presidential candidate that's talking about these issues? And why aren't more people uh, in government and also watchdog groups uh, concerned about some of these things. I mean, this doesn't seem to be on anyone else's radar. And RFK is not, you know, again, I mean, he, he's an environmental lawyer. Um, he's someone who's very well respected. He's not, um, you know, to just by contrast, he's not Joe Exotic who's running for president. I mean, he's somebody who um, who actually has a, a large measure of credibility, particularly in these areas. So why is nobody else really paying attention to this? Well, what, one thing you notice very quickly when RFK starts to talk about this stuff is that it's it's a personal mission for him, I think. He's been working on environmental issues since his early 20s. I think he started off, as he says on the Joe Rogan uh, interview, working to clean up the Hudson River, which is somewhere that he had, had, had loved, uh, you know, an environment that he had loved from an early age. 
But the question of of why people haven't been taking this seriously is uh, is is quite a is quite a disquieting question, really, when you start to think about it. I think, in large part, the problem is that a great many of these chemicals, things like BPA, phthalates, PFAS, are involved in uh, industrial processes that make a lot of money. You know, we live in a plastic world. Plastics are worth billions and billions, maybe trillions of dollars globally. You know, our entire world runs on molded plastics. And if it turns out that actually the chemicals associated with making such products are unavoidably toxic, then and we want to do something about it, then that means a whole lot of upheaval and potentially a, a massive loss in um, in income for certain certain companies. So I think there's a big commercial incentive not to investigate this problem. And I think that's why it has taken decades and decades. And the emergence of someone who actually feels that this is a personal mission, his life's work, um, for it to come to the fore in this way. And I'm speaking with Raw Egg Nationalist, who is the uh, best-selling author of the book, The Eggs Benedict Option, which I, uh, I recommend uh, to listeners as well. And, um, and, and Raw Egg, I, I think that there's also another um, sort of embedded question there, which is um, the, the rise of the pharmaceutical industry that um, now has made what, what they term reproductive health, which, um, you know, of course, would include some things like um, IVF and, and surrogacy and some of these things. But um, is there incentive, in your view, from a lot of the lobby, uh, like Big Pharma, to not investigate or maybe turn a blind eye to some of these things? Because as infertility rises among the human population, then that increases a consumer base for a lot of their reproductive um, pharmaceutical services. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hard not to reach that conclusion. Uh, I mean, one of the things we could make an analogy, for instance, with the treatment of depression. There are so many studies that show that actually the best way to treat depression is to prescribe exercise. I wrote a, I wrote a thread about this on Twitter yesterday. A huge meta study just came out. So that's a study of other studies showing that exercise is one and a half times more effective as an intervention than prescription drugs or counseling for people suffering from depression. But the thing, of course, about exercise is that exercise doesn't make the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies any money so there's a huge huge uh, and the pharmaceutical companies obviously exert a huge um exert huge pressure over the medical industry more generally over general practice over doctors and um so of of, of course then you know th this message that actually exercise uh, which costs nothing might be more effective doesn't really get through and so yes i think that again reproductive reproductive health fertility services, IVF, etc., um, sperm donation, whatever, are big money makers. And so, again, there is a disincentive to get to the root cause of the problem. They, they want us to focus on ad hoc responses. Mm -hmm. Which then necessitates that uh, the the government 
should get involved at least in asking some of these questions. And I think it's good that people like RFK, and I, I think he's he's the only one right now, at least on um, the presidential candidate scale from from any uh, from either of the two parties, uh, but anyone who's running currently that's willing to ask these questions. Um, but I think that you know Congress should as well. And there, if if there are legislative solutions, if there are things um, even on the state level that can be done to inquire um, ab- about these concerns and to say, okay, what is actually in our tap water? Um, are some of the filters genuinely effective? Um, and and to actually take on the role and responsibility of what we as citizens would expect that our government is doing, which is legislating in our best interest, not to uh, a big pharma lobby or to any other kinds of lobby or to just ignore some of these things that are going on and allowing um, some of uh, these other um, sorts of policies to, to just be implemented without really any regulation or oversight. And generally, you know, conservatives are, are always saying, well, less government is better. Um, but some of these things that ne- necessarily have to be regulated in the 21st century, um, we need to have some of these substantive questions and and have some sub- substantive responses. So in just the last few minutes I have with you, um, Ra'e, what are some of the solutions you would like to see or even questions that should be asked by Congress or on the state and local level? Well, one thing that I think would be very important would be to change the licensing system for new chemicals. So I've written about this a number of times and we've spoken about this. Uh, Chemicals are licensed on the assumption basically that they're safe until proven otherwise. That's the governing principle. And so decades later, we find out actually plastics are extremely harmful. Uh, They contain all sorts of endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, and it's the same with with a myriad of with all of these toxic chemicals. And so, what I think we need is a new licensing system that actually that actually takes a longer time to look at the effects, the potential effects in living creatures in the environment of new chemicals, so that we don't end up again in a in a situation where decades down the line or years down the line we discover that actually we're 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 basically awash in in another kind of terribly terribly toxic chemical so that's one thing that i think that definitely has to happen but we need we need a far reaching inquiry into the causes of chronic disease i think that's what we need and and we actually need to we need to proceed on the basis that we will leave no stone unturned however painful it may be to to flip over those stones we we have to do it because ultimately as i said earlier we could end up in a situation where we're not we're not actually even able to reproduce properly within decades yeah, and, and this just seems to be some really basic questions that people should be asking. What is the cause of, um, for example, you know, the declining testosterone and sperm rate in young uh, males? And you know, and this isn't just all ideologically based that we're seeing a lot of the uh, the rise of transgenderism and queerness and some of these other things. And so we need to be asking these questions. And uh, thanks so much, Raw Egg. And for those listening, if you want more, I actually had him on my podcast yesterday. We had a lengthier conversation. So you can go and find that at thejennaellisshow.com. You can reach me here, jenna at afr.net, and make it a great day. I will see you tomorrow morning.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.